Go ahead and pull it out. We've been in John most of the year so far, and uh, there's some tucked underneath the seat in front of you as well. When you get it, open up to the book of John, which is one of the first, well, it's the fourth of the Gospels in the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you get there, find the big number five. We're going to be in John chapter five, John chapter five. So, um, well, welcome to Sedaris. Like I said, we've been leaning into the Gospel of John today, which we love because the most important thing about somebody is really what they think about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so we just are getting to consider him each and every morning uh, together, each and every Sunday morning together in just a very direct, explicit way. We always walk through the scriptures and apply them to Christ, but it's really great being in John because it's just all Jesus all the time. So um, if you've been tracking with us in the past few weeks, you'll know that we've been kind of in this uh, trial statement that Jesus is in. Uh, What am I talking about there? Um, there's the circumstances that happened in Jerusalem when Jesus went to Jerusalem, and uh, he healed a man on the Sabbath, and the religious authorities considered that breaking the Sabbath, okay? So they were they're like, that's work, that's Sabbath, this is the day of rest, you're working on the Sabbath. But if that wasn't enough, Jesus actually told this lame man that he healed, um, he said, hey, how about you pick up your mat, and how about you go walk around Jerusalem a lot? So what was Jesus doing with that? He was picking a fight. He was picking a fight. It's my best Scottish accent. No, Irish accent. It's a reference to the movie Braveheart. Unplanned, you just get that sometimes, you know? Going to pick a fight. Is that Scottish? No, that's Scottish, right? Yeah. Yeah, my apologies. Uh, Jesus is trying to pick a fight in Jerusalem because he's not only breaking the Sabbath himself, supposedly by healing on the Sabbath, but he's actually telling this guy to also break the Sabbath. He's saying, hey, you go walk around. You go pick up your mat. And so... The, Jew, the, the Jews, they see this and say, whoa, you're breaking Sabbath. What's going on? He said, Jesus told me to break the Sabbath. So now, not only are in their minds is Jesus breaking the, the Sabbath, their sweet religion, he's actually inspiring co-conspirators to come alongside him. And so Jesus has done all of this because he's trying to set up a conversation. He's trying to set up a conversation that looks a lot like a trial, is what we're saying. And it's this conversation that we're in. It's in uh, it, so these events take up all of John chapter uh, five and and uh, last week we unpacked Jesus's opening statement, the opening statement to this trial, um, because what has happened is is they're upset not just that he's breaking the Sabbath, but that in his initial response to them of they're saying you can't do this, he claimed to be equal with God. And Dave unpacked that great. That was, that's back in verses, you know, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. And the Jews, uh, because he was claiming to be God, were all the more trying to kill him. It says here. This is really the claim that Jesus wanted to argue about with them. So he's done this kind of Sabbath-breaking thing so that we can have an argument about the divinity, his divine claim to be God. And so in his opening statement, he proclaimed that he is God come to earth to bring life to humanity. That's us. That's us. And then he transitions to calling witnesses in this trial. He transitions to calling witnesses before wrapping it all up with a closing argument. We're going to look at the witnesses in the closing argument today. Um, but why is this important to us anyways? Like, why, why should we care? After all, Jesus had to make this case to the people of his day so that they could wrap their heads around this God-man reality that could be a thing, which apparently wasn't in their heads, but we got that down pat, right? Well, not so fast. Because the trouble is that the testimony of these witnesses, the people listening to Jesus didn't accept them because this testimony gets altered or changed a little bit. And these witnesses actually get, have been getting altered and changed and twisted for 2,000 years now. 
even to today. This could be done by those who are outside of Christianity, just trying to discredit the witness so they can say, oh, no, Jesus isn't the Son of God. But perhaps more commonly, it even happens inside the church. The confusion can come from within Christianity where uncareful or ill-intentioned Jesus followers and leaders twist our perception of these witnesses to discredit them for some other purpose. You see, we might say that Jesus is God, but what exactly are we saying when we say that Jesus is God? This is what John's been all about in his gospel. What exactly do you believe about Jesus, the Son of God? I'm going to make that clear for you. I'm going to show you how Jesus made that clear for us because it's the most important thing. Um, so what exactly do you mean about the Son, when you say Jesus is the Son of God? Do you mean it in the same way that these witnesses today are going to testify to? Because here's the problem. These witnesses can get altered even in our, in our own minds so subtly, so subtly. But, but when the testimony gets altered, they actually no, no longer testify to the true Jesus, just an image of Jesus that we have in our mind. And when that happens, something begins to grow in our heart, something that, the, that John would call unbelief. If you've been tracking through us or with us through this sermon series, you'll notice that John is always grabbing this word, belief, belief, belief. It's really interesting. And when unbelief kind of enters the hearts of even a, a heart of a Christian, left unchecked, it can grow. Now, now usually this unbelief isn't going to make you renounce the faith. So, so don't hear that. This is like a different notion of unbelief, probably a deeper, fuller, more, more robust definition of unbelief that can grow in our hearts covertly, influencing our thinking and the way that we live our lives without even being aware of it. So you see, most of our wandering from God kind of, I say it kind of stems from three siblings, okay? Pride, selfishness, and unbelief. Most of our wandering from God stems from all three of those. You might be familiar with identifying the first two, maybe looking out for those in your lives. Pride, where, where am I being prideful? Where am I being selfish? But this third uh, sibling, unbelief, is a little bit more unfamiliar in the minds of Christians, I find. But it's not just not believing. It's actually not trusting God at his word. So, so the, way you, the place you go to look for the original places kind of presents its head in Scripture. It's actually all the way back in the garden. With Eve, all the way back in Eve, the serpent comes to Eve and he actually tempts her with kind of a version of all these siblings, all three of these siblings, but also unbelief. He says, God doesn't want to let you eat this fruit because he knows that the day that you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so he tempts her not to trust God. The temptation is... God doesn't want what's best for you. God's not looking out for you. If he really wanted to equip you with everything you needed to live life in this world, he'd let you determine this good and evil on your own. It's a, it's, it's a convenient unbelief for her because it actually comes with pride because she says, oh, I, I could also be like God. That's pretty awesome. It's a very convenient unbelief. So, so, so don't hear me make hard and fast kind of delineations between pride, unbelief, Selfishness, they're all kind of working together in this pool that is, is temptation. Um, they're far, in fact, like I've, I have uh, brothers. We're really rowdy when we're in the same room together. But you put us in our own living rooms, we're pretty calm. You know? But when we get together, things start to mix together, and before long, someone has a bloody nose or something's going on. 
So unbelief is just not believing in God. Eve still believed God. She just stopped to trust that God wanted what's best for her. You see that? That's not trusting God. And, and it, it leads in our lives when we don't trust God to, to picking all sorts of fruit, I guess, when we shouldn't. The reality of lingering unbelief means the question, do you believe in God, is not the right question for a Christian. It's, instead, it's, it's where do you struggle to trust God? That's, that's a better question for us to ask this morning. Do you find it difficult to believe that he wants what's best for you? Do you find it hard to believe he'll provide you with everything you need in, in, in your life, both resources and relationships? Do you sometimes find it hard to believe that he cherishes and loves you? What is it for you? All of us struggle with unbelief, with not trusting God in, in, in some level in, in our hearts. Now, the Jews struggled to believe that Jesus was the, the Son of God. They struggled to trust him or to accept him. And so he provides these witnesses to his divinity, and then he has this closing argument, like I mentioned, um, where he unpacks exactly why they're struggling to trust him. And, and so if we let Jesus here, we keep our hearts open. We can let him speak to us as well in very similar ways and help us push through and identify unbelief in our hearts and perhaps where it stems from and how we might grow and find joy and life in him. Jesus has come to bring life, which means he needs to show us where our hearts are not trusting in him to give us that life. So that's why he's calling these witnesses. So we're going to look at each of these witnesses, see what they say, examine how their testimony can be altered and twisted, so that while we may believe it at face value, sometimes we actually may not be actually trusting it. So, um, and then we're going to look into the, this closing argument that he has that actually starts in verse 41. All right, so pick your Bible up with me together. We're going to read verse, uh, we're going to read verse 31 to get us going. Jesus says, he said, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Is not true. So so Jesus is the first witness. He gave his opening argument. He says, I just testified about myself. But in order for something to be true and seen as valid, both in Hebrew society and it's just a good rule of thumb generally, um, two people have to say it's true. I can't wait until my youngest daughter can give testimony. Because right now, when Penny and Lucy come to me after a fight, it's just one word against the other. How do you make that? That's why it's good to have a third kid. (laughs) Get two witnesses. All right? And so he says, you need more witnesses. And I'm going to give you more than just a second. I'm going to give you four. I'm going to give you four more. And so the first witness he calls is John the Baptist. Pick it up in verse 32. He says, there's another who testifies about me. And I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. Now, I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So he's talking about John the Baptist here. He says, while you guys didn't hear his witness directly. He kind of teases us out a little bit. You guys were too important to go out to the countryside to actually go listen to John the the Baptist, who I think, this is Jesus speaking, I call the greatest human to ever walk the face of the planet. Well, you guys are too busy over here. You sent messengers, and the messengers brought report back to you, and you actually liked it. You were encouraged. You were rejoicing that the harbinger of the Messiah had shown up on the scene. It's very interesting because just John the Baptist, what exactly did he witness to? 
Well, John, the gospel writer, actually includes John the Baptist's witness for us. Uh, let's just look at a piece of it here in, in chapter 1. Uh, look, uh, yeah, here we go. Oh, John 1, 6 through 9, maybe? Maybe we don't have it up here. Oh, there it is. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is right at the very beginning of John's gospel. He came as a witness, there's that language, to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and that's God, that's Jesus Christ. And so to be a testimony was the job of John the Baptist. And as we read through chapter 1, John the Baptist says a lot of things about Jesus Christ. He testified that this Jesus existed before me. Jesus was actually younger than John, though. So what's John saying then? He testified that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he said. He said, I saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove. He said, this is the Son of God. And he said, this Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is the testimony of John the Baptist. And Jesus said, you rejoiced in John the Baptist for a while. You celebrated that he was the harbinger of this Messiah. You celebrated that. Even you guys got all caught up in the messianic fervor. John's purpose was to help you get on board with me, though. Remember that, though? What happened to your joy? This happens a lot, actually, still today. Do you remember the first person or few people that you had conversations with when you started to talk about Jesus Christ? And in those conversations, you may have experienced the thrill or, or, or the dare to hope. What if this could be true? I, true, I think I've found something priceless. I think I've found something beautiful here. A part of you is caught up in it, rejoicing at that discovery. Who was it for you? The Jews in Jerusalem had that experience with John the Baptist. And for some reason, they went back and they reinterpreted that testimony they altered it to a point where they no longer trusted him as a witness. Unbelief crept into their hearts. Why? Maybe because he called them a brood of vipers. Maybe because he disagreed with how the political elites took the wives of other people, of whom the religious elites in Jerusalem were kind of chummy with. Maybe it's because the Messiah that he identified showed up in Jerusalem and started messing with their religion. Overturning tables, creating whips, driving people out of the temple, courts. They didn't like the implications of John's witness. They didn't like the implications of who he said was the Messiah. They said, if trusting this witness means we get this Messiah, no thank you. Hard pass to that. Now, have you ever been tempted to reinterpret those conversations that you had, that original rejoicing have you ever been tempted to reinterpret those? Of course you have. We all have. Tempted to look back upon those conversations and pretend like you weren't convinced and joyful and hopeful in those moments. That you didn't feel the excitement and rejoicing within yourself at the possibility that you discovered this priceless truth. If you've stopped, why did you stop? Have you reinterpreted it? Have you moved beyond it? Was it because you just became uncomfortable with this Jesus who you discovered? 
This happens all the time. If, if you've had incredible conversations with people about Jesus, where you can feel that energy, where you're sitting at a coffee shop and you're going back and forth, you can feel the energy. There is just so much rejoicing. This person's opening their heart and their mind to the fact that this could be true for the first time. And you feel the joy in them only to meet up with them again. And, whoa, hold on. It's cold now. They feel hard and closed now. You're in really good company. That happens often. But it doesn't happen all the time. Why do you think John here, the gospel writer, is so detailed about John the Baptist? Because he used to be one of John the Baptist's disciples. This is back in chapter 1. John makes this testimony about the Christ. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and Andrew and another disciple, John doesn't like to use his own name in his gospel for some reason, and another disciple, who were disciples of John the Baptist, go and investigate Jesus and become two of the twelve. The witness doesn't always return void. It doesn't always return void here. And that's something to rejoice in. Sometimes people do encounter the Christ and see him for the, the treasure that he is and keep going and keep digging and keep discovering and find life and life to the full. Now, Jesus said something strange about this witness before we move on from him. He says, I don't receive human testimony. This is verse 34. But I say these things so that you may be saved. I don't accept human testimony. That's kind of harsh, Jesus. Now, he said everything that John said was, was true, but it's just that Jesus himself did not depend on it to establish who he was in his own mind. It's for us to establish who Jesus is. It's not, Jesus isn't dependent upon human testimony to know who he is. It's a claim to his divinity. He says, hold on, I'm divine. I don't, the creator doesn't look to its creation to ask, who, who am I? <laughs> right? that, that'd be very silly. The creation can't turn around and put definition to the creator. Now, we can speak of our experiences with him and, and who he could be and who he might be, but the only one actually capable of defining God is God. This is a blunt statement here that Jesus is saying. And to put it a blunt way in our kind of modern vernaculars, Jesus couldn't care less about who he is to you. You heard that phrase? Who, who he is to you as far as definitions about him go, because if it's incongruent with the other witnesses that he's about to call here, he says, man, these witnesses are actually the big ones that define who I am. And so if we uh, are talking about Jesus, who he is to us, and it's incongruent with how these other witnesses talk about him, we should really do some hard questioning of ourselves. Hold on a sec here. Why have I got so far off base? Is this the real Jesus that? Or have I twisted and altered the witness of who Jesus is? Um, all right, so let's move on to one of those witnesses. Let's move on to this second witness here that Jesus calls. It's in verse 36. Jesus says, but I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. Uh, the second or, uh, witness here then is Jesus' works, which include his ministry and all of his miraculous signs that, that he performed. Um, these activities that they speak, they testify to the fact that he is divine, and as we have encountered these testifying works thus far, we 
see that Jesus did them to say something more than he just has power over nature, although he does have power over nature. He did them to, to say something more than he's just a really good healer, although he is a really good healer. Uh, but the miracles and signs that he performed pointed, they, they have this element where there's different aspects of them that point to this climactic work of redemption that Jesus is doing, where he's, trying, he's saying, I'm actually here to provide a pathway back to the author of life that you might experience life to the full. My spiritual works of being part of this redemptive process that I have power over creation, I can come into creation, and I'm doing this in order to extend life to you. This is what I'm all about. Now, this witness can be discounted most on the nose by kind of the scientific mind, I suppose, which says that miracles cannot happen. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this objection um, because I don't think maybe those people are really in the room. (laughs) But um, these events, all the events of Jesus' life that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote are actually close enough to Jesus' death that a lot of people would have been alive around this time. And so if they were actually telling falsities, you would have a counter witness going on that, that would kind of be passed down of like, hold on, these are lies. <laughs> Jesus never did that. Jesus never healed this man. Jesus never fed 4,000 people. Jesus never fed 5,000 people. Hold on. Um, but those actually aren't there. Instead, all the apostles, through imprisonment, torture, and eventually death, hold on to everything that they said about Jesus and don't recant a piece of it. Uh, But what I'm more interested in with regards to this witness is how the testimony of Jesus' works, they can be tweaked and altered so that we no longer really lean on them in in the fullest sense. We actually begin to lean on other works. Because this is what I see happen all the time. This witness can get slightly tweaked so people don't really need to wrestle with it. What do I mean by that? Um, Nowadays, it seems that the validity of, the validity of the divinity, ooh, that's a phrase, the validity of the divinity of Jesus Christ no longer rests upon his works, but on the works of his followers or churches. Have, have you noticed this? This is probably captured most clearly by the clever uh, statement of Gandhi. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. And let me pr- provide some context for you. Gandhi never became a Christian. This is his argument not to consider the divine Christ He's saying, this divine Christ that you said came and claimed to give divine life to Christians, I don't see the divine life of Christians, so I'm not going to consider the divine Christ. He's using this to dismiss considering the works of Christ. He's looking at the works of Christ's followers. And if we're not careful, we can let this argument give us a little bit of an inferiority complex. People made this argument before Gandhi, and they're doing it still. It's not really that clever of an argument, no matter how cleverly one might word it. It's, it's, dismissing the, it's really dismissing the good actor Christ because there's some bad actors that follow him. Now, now don't misunderstand me. I'll be the first to tell you that, that humans are terrible. Um, I'm one of them. And, and Christians have done terrible things, just like all humans. Um, Perhaps you as an individual have experienced real trauma by someone, uh, by a bad actor of Christ. Um, and let's get together and let's lament that. Let's talk about that. Let's, let's give that space to breathe and, and own it and, and say what really happened and, and that it's terrible. And, and then I encourage you to take some steps forward and consider Jesus' works again. Look at Jesus' works again. 
because you know it's not part of the works of Christ? Abuse, manipulation, mistreatment, narcissism. All those who knew him best said there wasn't an ounce of this attached to him. No hurting, no mistreatment. The only witness we have to the works of Christ is a life of perfect love lived towards all people. This is remarkable. This is why people think he was the son of God. We can't live that life. That's too heavy of a burden for us to carry. If we assume that responsibility, it will crush us. We're never meant to hold it. Only Christ can hold it. That's what's going to help people see Jesus as real, if they behold Christ, not us. So that's his works. Witness number two. Number two. Um, let's move on to witness number three here, which is in verse 37. 37. This is the most interesting witness to try to wrap your head around. A lot of because of, uh, because of a lot of what Dave said last week. This is complicated. We're going to get thrust into Trinitarian theology here. Verse 37. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time. You haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe in the one he sent. Now, this is very interesting. This witness is unlike the other witnesses that Jesus has witnessed because the testimony of the Father actually doesn't seem to have any content on surface value. Like when we look at John the Baptist, oh, we know what John the Baptist witnessed and testified to. We look at the works of Christ, oh, it's pretty clear what the works of Christ witnessed and testified to. He mentions the Father, and it's like, whoa, what are we talking about? Where's the content of the testimony? It's not exactly there. And instead, he kind of shifts gears, and he makes kind of three negative statements about the Jews in Jerusalem. He says, you haven't heard him. You haven't seen him. It's the third one. You don't have his word residing in you. These things aren't true about you. And, and, And how do I know this? Because you don't believe in the one he sent. That's the test. You don't believe in the one he sent. They don't accept Jesus. And what Jesus is doing here is he's actually grasping all the interactions that God has had with the nation, with the Jews and the nation of Israel for a thousand years at this point. He's grasping all of it. The author of Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, kind of starts off by saying, God at various points and various times and various ways spoke to our fathers. Okay, the Jewish fathers. This is kind of that notion of like, God has done a lot with the nation of Israel. And if you've seen him, if you've heard him, if you've read his word, you can really understand that I am him. Philip looks at Jesus at the Last Supper we're going to get to in John chapter 14. Jesus, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Jesus is like, Philip. Anybody who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say to me, show me the Father? Mine should be getting blown a little bit here. What's going on? Jesus makes it clear that to refuse him is to refuse all of the testimony that God had done in the nation of Israel, the Jews of the nation of Israel up to this point. All of it. That that worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Stiff-arming the Christ means that you don't understand or grasp the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've confused that witness, that testimony, as something else altogether. And in Jesus' time, it was thought that this God really wanted a nation-state of Israel. This is what this God is all about, is what they were convinced of. 
And so we should always beware conceiving of God as someone who will give us power in the world. This is not what God does. He doesn't give us power necessarily in the world. This is not the goal of God to extend power to you. The goal of God is not to, to build us up so that we might, we might form some moral majority and put forth his law. No, that's not what God is up to. He's also not the God that's going to give us the desires of our heart. That's really all it is, us wanting power in the world. This God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not a Santa Claus God. And when he showed up in the form of the Son, if you want him to be a Santa Claus God, you're going to be really disappointed when he invites you to suffer alongside of him. That's what's going on. All right, let's keep moving through these witnesses here. Number four. Fourth witness that Jesus mentions, the Scriptures. The scriptures. This is in verse 39. You pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. This is witness number four. The Scriptures. He's referring to the Hebrew Scriptures. That would be everything in your Bible that's the Old Testament. And he's saying, you guys think you have eternal life in them. They're just a witness. What are you talking about? They're there to tell you that you need to look for God showing up on this scene to extend life to you. They're not a user's manual for how to access life. You've twisted the scriptures into a formula for how to get life, how to get salvation. What have you done? What have you done? That's exactly what they did. They took the witness of Scripture, this profound and complex story of God bringing heaven to earth again through a God king, how he himself would humble himself to assume the form of a human, reunite with his beloved humanity, and they turned this beautiful, sacrificial love story into a simple rule book. They treated it like something as plain and mundane as Hammurabi's code. They discarded a beautiful drama, a tragedy, a romance. Turned it into a user's manual, a list of do's and don'ts. What a shame. And so we must ask the question, what is this book to you? What is this book to you? Is it something that's just supposed to help you live your life? Or is it the key that introduces you to the author of life? How do you consider this book? What is the Bible to you? Is it all about Jesus Christ, the person of life, or is it just a how-to manual for life? You might be tempted to say, I'm not religious like these Jews were here. I'm not religious. I don't hold the Bible in that way. I'm not really in it that much. So not so fast. There's a couple ways to engage a user's manual. On the one hand, someone can study it, learn it, memorize it, figure out everything about it like these religious elites of Jesus' day. But think of your other user's manuals that you might have. I had to pull out a user's manual this week. My minivan started spouting oil in the hood. It's not supposed to happen. So I have a problem. I'm going to grab this user's manual. Never opened this thing before. Had this van four or five years now. Didn't say anything about spouting oil. I was very disappointed. But it was the first time I grabbed it in years. Is your copy of the scriptures collecting dust somewhere until you really need it, until you feel like life is really going poorly? Then you grab for it, 
That's treating it as a user's manual just as much. Just as much. It's using, treating it as a user's manual for life. Now, hopefully as you engage it, you might be introduced to the author of life, but you might not trust that. You might trust that this might help me out of my fix, not introduce me to the person who is going to bring us out of all of the darkness of life through his person. So those are the, the four witnesses Jesus calls alongside him to testify to his divinity, how we can kind of get them wrong a little bit, twist them, alter them, how they get altered by culture, even Christian culture. Now, if you're in cohorts this week, you would say something like, hold on, Ryan, we haven't talked about Moses yet. We talked about Moses in cohorts. He's in the rest of this. And absolutely, you're absolutely right. Moses, he is a witness, but he'd be a witness under just this general heading of Scripture. Jesus actually doesn't use the testify, witness language with Moses when he talks about Moses in these next verses. He uses a different verb. See if you can pick up on it. It's because he's doing something altogether different. And this is really what Jesus, this, I, we're calling this Jesus' closing argument here. Um, this is the key to really understand why people reject the witnesses that Christ has to his divinity. So let's read 41 through 47 together. Jesus says, I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? So there's a lot going on here. A lot of big terms here. Zoom out for a second with me. Why is Jesus having this trial with the Jews right now? Because they accused him of disobeying the Mosaic law, of of breaking Sabbath, which is one of the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain. Now these Different, different religious people in Jerusalem kind of had different opinions on part of what Moses brought down from the mountain and how exactly that was to be applied, but they all loved this Torah. They loved this Torah. They embraced it. They thought Moses was their guy. Moses was on their side. We love the Torah. Moses wrote this. We love it. But Jesus, he sees right through all of it. He says, you guys, you guys are just trying to seek glory from one another. Glory, that's, that's the repeated word in this paragraph. Glory, glory. You're working really hard to make sure that people see you as a holy person. Whatever spiritual practice Jesus talked about, praying person. You're not content to, to pray at home in your closet. You make sure to let people know that you did it. You're not content to fast in secret. You make mention of it. You don't give in secret. You parade your gifts into the temple in front of everybody. These, all, these three come from the Sermon on the Mount. You guys are seeking glory from one another all the time. You guys could care less about pleasing God. You guys could care less about ministering to his desires. You're just worried about pleasing one another, looking good in the eyes of one another. You guys are just walking around Jerusalem, spiritually flexing on each other, all the time, seeking glory. And I don't do that. I don't seek glory from people. 
I don't seek to be seen as great in their eyes like you do. Because do you know who else hates that? Moses. Moses. We had the opportunity to preach through Exodus a couple years back now. Jesus is saying, do you want to invoke Moses on me? You don't know Moses. You don't know... You don't know Moses at all. Look back at the end of the Torah. You know what it says at the end of the Torah in in Deuteronomy? It says, Moses was the most humble man to walk the face of the earth. Moses probably didn't write that, right? Probably not. I think the general thought was that Joshua came up and penned that, you know? The most humble man to walk the face of the earth, and you guys are are all completely obsessed with your own glory? This is Moses, who is a low and humble servant of God, who didn't even want the position at all, who would throw himself at the floor of God and say, God, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. Who, when people would come up and exert their authority against him, he would just humbly fall on his face before God and and say, Lord, you defend me. I can't defend myself here on this. The Moses who walked the face of the earth with this people who constantly grumbled against him, yet he, he in turn was nothing but gracious and thoughtful and kind towards them. You think Moses is on your side, Jesus says? No, Jesus is saying, Moses is with me. He's not your guy. He's my guy. And when it comes time for people to be judged, I know I just got done talking about, if you're listening to the opening statement last week, I know I just got to talk about how I'm going to judge the entire earth. I'm going to let your guy accuse you. I'm going to let the guy who you think you're following accuse you. I'm going to let him come to the stand and look at you and say you completely missed what he was writing about. I know your wicked and prideful hearts. I know... So at that day, when that day comes, I'm going to let Moses do it. Now, don't let the fact that Jesus is most likely trying to rebuke religious elites let you step around kind of this tension. It's good to sit in this tension. John actually says this conversation took place between Jesus and the Jews. He doesn't really particularize it to like the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Herodians. He just says all the Jews of Jerusalem. It's likely that the leadership of Jerusalem. But, but John is kind of saying this to, to really highlight that every single person needs to consider the witnesses of Christ. And every person needs to consider heavily that when it comes to the witnesses of Christ, we're really worried about what other people think. So we might not accept their testimony. Because at the end of the trial, the jury goes into the jury room to deliberate. And that deliberation it's not individual, it's public. It's public. There's something that you have to do in the jury room which says, I think Jesus is who he says he is. Or I don't think Jesus is who he says he is. Which is to say that, that trust in our God is often most clearly assailed by our desire to put an image in front of other people that's accepted. And that is what can often get in the way of belief, of trusting in Jesus. What will other people think about me if they knew I trusted in Jesus? I've had many, many, many conversations with people who who find it difficult to believe, find it hard to believe in Jesus. And you, you know what doesn't work? Encouraging them to try harder to believe. You know what does work? 
What about believing in Jesus do you think um, would cause you to lose sight in which relationships with which people? And how is that hard for you to stomach? And why exactly is that is? What if the obstacle between you and belief isn't some vague notion of believing harder or, or certainty or having the right facts? It's actually entertaining the thought that other people might reject you for it, and that'll be okay. What if that's the key to trusting in Jesus? Is being okay to take a stand and have people reject you? So what I've done is, um, if you came in here today, there's this litany of humility that you sat down with. Um, there should be one close to you. If you don't have one, uh, there's a few more in the back on the windowsill and, or grab one off the chair that's not being used. And I just want us to just collectively, in order to believe and trust in Jesus more, to increase our trust of Christ, lean into humility together. Um, and so uh, just take a second to just bow your heart before the Lord. Um, and I'll, I'll read this prayer out loud. If you're a, a, one of the men of Sedaris, you might already have a relationship with this litany of humility. I believe it hangs in our men's restroom. Uh, so here it is. Oh, Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. Deliver me, Jesus, from the desire of being esteemed, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred to others. Deliver me, Jesus, from the desire of being consulted. Deliver me, Jesus, from the desire of being approved. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being humiliated. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being despised. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of suffering rebukes. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being calumniated. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being forgotten. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being ridiculed. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being wronged. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may be loved more than I, that others may be esteemed more than I, that in the opinion of the world others may increase and I may decrease, that others may be chosen and I set aside, that others may be praised and I go unnoticed, that others may be preferred to me in everything, that others may become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Would you pray with me?